listeners, and welcome to Ohio Mysteries. What a fantastic week we have had here at OM headquarters. Last Sunday, we started with the missing Olympic medals of Jesse Owens. Then Wednesday, we took a look at the very first episode from Ohio Mysteries Backroads hosts, Mike and Dan, who brought us a story that very few of us have ever heard of. Imagine going skydiving and ending up jumping out at the wrong location, this being the deadly location of above Lake Erie. What a fantastic story. If you have not heard this story, please go back and listen to it. It was released last Wednesday at 8 p.m. And join us every Wednesday at 8 p.m. for more stories from Ohio Mysteries Backroads. Now, let's throw another log on the fire, campers. Let's dig up a new mystery. I'm your co-host, Steve Yoder, and with us as always is our storyteller and award-winning journalist who spent 30-plus years telling these kinds of stories with the Akron Beacon Journal, Paula Schleiss. Hi, everybody. We don't know what name Rosa Colvin was born under or to whom. We don't know where she came from prior to arriving in Cuyahoga County in the 1860s. Really, all we know about Rosa is how she died, and it was a death that has kept her memory alive for more than 150 years. It was 1866, the year after the Civil War had ended. Cleveland was becoming a thriving economic hub of the state, and Cuyahoga County was home to some 132,000 souls. But there was still plenty of rural land in the area, like Olmstead Township, which was heavily forested and in need of some clearing. That's what Rosa Colvin's husband, Bill, was hired for. Bill was a Scottish immigrant, born about 1833, which makes him 33 years old when our story takes place. Rosa was a little older, maybe 36. Bill was her third husband. We're not sure what happened to the first two. Bill Colvin was a Civil War veteran, and the war may have made him a mean son of a gun, or maybe he was always like that. He was an alcoholic and abusive, and he stood out to people because of a pronounced stutter. He and Rosa had been married a year, and witnesses said they thought Rosa could probably give as good as she got. Both of them sported marks on their faces, suggesting their domestic disputes often turned physical. Bill sometimes worked in the quarries in Berea, Berea's quarries were world-famous for their high-quality sandstone, and Bill was a day laborer, that is, when he wasn't drinking. Too often, he skipped work altogether and took up residence in one of the bars in Berea or Olmstead Falls. His other job was cutting down trees. Property owner Robert Crawford hired Bill to clear some of the trees from his thousand acres of land in Olmstead Township, 
and he gave him and Rosa a place to live for the duration of his employment. Though to call this place a home would be generous. Later, the Cleveland Leader, a local newspaper, would have reason to describe the 20-foot by 18-foot shanty. They wrote, There was no hint of yard or garden. The open area was inexpressibly dreary, and the house seemed the picture of all that is wretched, dismal, and profane in life. But no conception of the squalor could be formed until the interior was inspected. There were but two rooms, lighted by one common and two very small-sized windows. No more were needed, since daylight flooded the house through the wide cracks between the upright boards. The floor was loose and full of fissures and chasms. In the front room were a bed, table, a broken cooking stove, two or three chairs, and a cupboard in which dirty dishes and breads and crackers were stacked. A few comic pictures were pinned like a naturalist's insects to the siding. In the back room were two bunks, a box stove, and trumpery ad infinitum. Blood was everywhere. Okay, we jumped the gun a little. The blood comes later. So, in early March of 1866, Bill brought home a boarder to live in the little shack with he and Rosa. It's possible the guy was supposed to help Bill clear trees, but... Just as likely, Bill wanted a drinking buddy. The man's name was Alexander McConnell, a native of Ireland who had immigrated to Canada. He had a wife in Fitzroy, Canada, near Ottawa. She was a widowed mother of six when he married her. Then they added three more kids to their family. And he farmed the land until, well, until he left. According to some reports, had gone to Berea to work off a debt that he owed there. Now, in the early morning of Saturday, March the 24th, 1866, Bill and Alex decided to head over to Berea and pick up a little weekend work in the quarries. They set out on foot. But a mile into the walk, when they reached the C&T railroad track, Alex suddenly changed his mind said the rheumatism in his knee was hurting too much to go on and that he intended to go back to the shack. If Bill had been at all bright, he should have been suspicious. You see, Bill received a pension from the Civil War and Rosa wisely had collected his monthly payment. They had at least $150 in cash hidden in a trunk in their little shack. Then again, maybe not so well hidden, because someone told Alex about the money. And since Rosa wasn't an alcoholic, and Bill was, you can take an educated guess as to who had loose lips. But if Bill at all suspected Alex was going back for the money, he didn't act on it. He continued toward Berea, first arriving in Olmstead Falls, 
where Rosa had caught up to him, saying she planned to accompany him to Berea. We don't know why. Perhaps she wanted to make sure he wasn't tempted by bars along the way. Bill told her to go on back home, and he continued to the quarries alone. Rosa did indeed turn back. Witnesses later would recount they saw Rosa on her way back to the shack around 11 o'clock that morning. Witnesses also saw Alex McConnell headed in the same direction. This was the last time anyone would see Rosa alive. So Bill went out drinking after work with a pal named Joe Miller, and around 8 p.m., the pair of them stumbled back to the shack. I guess Bill didn't care how many strays he brought home. The two men made a little dinner, then crashed, completely unfazed that Rosa wasn't about. Or maybe they were just too drunk to care. The next morning, it was a Sunday morning, the property owner, Robert Crawford, entered the shanty to find Bill and Joe making breakfast. But it was an astonishing scene. The two men were completely ignoring the fact that the shack was bathed in blood. There were pools of blood on the floor, smears on the wall. There was even a mop saturated with blood standing in the corner. The walls were flecked with gore and the bloody dragging of fingerprints raked across the boards. Crawford pointed this out. And Bill just shrugged. The two men said they hadn't noticed. But where was Rosa? Bill shrugged again. She probably ran off with Alex, he suggested. Well, Crawford came up with the only conclusion he could think of. Rosa and Alex must have both been murdered. Crawford had arrived at the cabin with his brother, and he sent his brother off to get the law a constable in Olmstead Falls by the name of Sabin. Sabin arrived around noon and promptly arrested Bill and his drinking buddy Joe. Then he searched the bloody shack and the surrounding area. He couldn't find any bodies. He did find Rosa's bracelet lying on the floor and one of her earrings in the water pail. He also noted that Bill himself had blood on his trousers and his vest. Bill said that wasn't Rosa's blood. He'd bought a quarter of beef on Friday and got the blood on himself as he carried the meat to the wagon. No steps at this time were taken to cut off the possible flight of Alex McConnell because everybody presumed Bill and perhaps Joe, had done the deed. Everybody knew how volatile Bill's relationship with Rosa had been. But Bill kept insisting on his innocence and said if Rosa was dead, then Alex was to blame. And he told authorities how Alex knew about the money he kept in the house. Well, this now started to seem possible. So a bounty of $75 was posted for the capture of Alex McConnell. And the men from throughout the area embarked on a widespread search to find him, 
just in case he was alive. Meanwhile, the search around the cabin expanded. They were certain there must be one and possibly two bodies lying about. This time, about a hundred yards east of the cabin, one of the searchers noticed that he was leaving a blood-stained footprint in the trace of snow on the ground. He looked back to see why and realized he had stepped on a dress saturated with blood. Rosa was found nearby, between a log and a pile of wood that had been toppled over her corpse. The body was taken to the Olmstead Falls Hotel, where Bill and Joe were being held under guard. They were in one room while the body was laid out in another. An examination had determined her skull had been fractured by a blow from an axe. Part of her scalp had been torn off and her left ear was dangling. Back at the cabin, searchers continued looking for the body of Alex McConnell, but they couldn't find one, and there was a growing opinion that maybe Alex had been the killer after all. This is Alex Hasty, the host of Ohio vs. the World, an American history podcast. On Ohio vs. the World, we'll travel back in time with the authors, historians, and even witnesses to visit the most exciting, consequential, and too often overlooked topics that have shaped America's history. There seems to be an Ohio connection to so many important moments. When you said uh, Ohio versus the world, we did some damage. So join us and we'll take a deep dive to enlighten, educate, and entertain you as Ohio vs. the world makes history fun again. Sheriff Nicola learned that Alex had previously worked at the Kinsman Street Railroad Company and from them learned his former address in Ottawa. So, the sheriff sent John O'Dell, a detective in the local district's revenue department, to the city of Fitzroy. And once in Canada, O'Dell enlisted the help of some local authorities and they knocked on the door of the McConnell house. They found Alex inside, trying to hide in the attic. He did not go peacefully. There was some rustling and threats that he'd be shot if he didn't stop resisting. They finally got him. They also found about $150 in the house, as well as some of Bill Colvin's possessions, including a watch, boots, pants, and his overcoat. Word was sent to Olmstead Falls, and Bill and Joe were immediately released. A news report said Bill responded with so much joy he couldn't speak. He could only dance about like a fawn while crying. His buddy Joe, it was said, had no reaction at all, as if he had never been worried that the truth would come out. Anyway, Sheriff Nicola went to Canada. He had to arrange for Alex McConnell's extradition, and he brought him back to Ohio in irons. A news report described the appearance of Alex. He is a little below the medium height, thick set, has wide jaws, heavy eyebrows, a low contracted forehead, blue eyes, 
restless and sinister in their expression, and a fair complexion with hair the inevitable brown. When conversing, he never looks you in the face. His lips wear a continual smirk, and the corners of his mouth twitch nervously. While McConnell shared some of his past with the sheriff, and people learned that he had been born in the county of Tyrone, Ireland, and had immigrated to Canada in 1850 when he was 20 years old. He married and became a farmer. He told authorities he owed an Olmstead Falls man $12, and when the man threatened to sue him, he traveled to Northeast Ohio to find a job so he could pay off the debt. In the 1800s, justice moved fast, and just three months after the murder of Rosa Colvin, Alex McConnell's trial commenced. It lasted four days. The jury deliberated 16 hours. The verdict came back, guilty of murder in the first degree. On the courthouse steps, McConnell was met by his sister, who had come from Canada to attend the trial. The pair of them held each other and wept, with McConnell heard to say, Never mind, Becca, never mind. At the sentencing, Judge Foote told Alex, You have had a fair, patient, and impartial trial, and you have no one to blame for the result but yourself. Then, Judge Foote announced Alex would be hung on the 10th day of August. As Alex whiled away the next few days in jail, Sheriff Nicola coaxed him into a confession, and Alex described the fateful day. Here's what he said in his own words. When I started with Colvin to go to Berea on the morning of the 24th of March last, I did not intend to go all the way. I intended to turn back and go to the shanty. There was no one at the shanty when I got there. I took Colvin's clothes and boots and left my own in the bed. Now, at this point, I should note that Alex, in his confession and to his dying day, would insist he had never taken the money nor even intended to, that he only intended to steal what clothing he could carry. So, back to his confession. Alex continued, I then started for the railroad, past Crawford's, intending to go by Illyria westward the way I came. On the way to the railroad track, I met Rosa Colvin in Egler's lot. I kept on, explaining to her that I had Colvin's things to carry them to him, that he was going to Cleveland. She said if Colvin was going to Cleveland, she was going too. We went on about halfway up the lane by Clodell's house when I told her that if Colvin did not get his things, he would not go to Cleveland, that I was tired. We then went back to the shanty by Egler's. After laying the clothes down and she seeing them, she said she didn't believe I was going to see her husband at all. I didn't know what to say. I confessed to her that I was going home to Canada. She said, have you been robbing the house? I said, no, 
I was taking some of Colvin's clothes and leaving some of mine in their place. I then said I would take my own clothes and go home. I had none of his clothes on then. She snatched up the iron poker and, placing herself in front of the door, said I should not go till William got home. I insisted that I would go home. She said she would go and call in the neighbors. I got my own clothes and started to go out of the door when she struck me over the arm with the poker. I laid down the clothes and I think I struck her with my fist. It knocked her down. She got up and struck at me. I seized a stick of wood and struck her, I think on the back of the head. She fell. She jumped up and struck me over the head with the poker. I staggered back against the wall, seized an axe, and struck her on the head. One blow. She died instantly. When I struck her, she fell, and I kicked her, which I think cut her ear. After she fell, I took her in my arms. I was alarmed, and I said, My God, have I killed you? Now, at this point in his confession, Alex paused and sobbed for a long time before he collected himself. Then he continued, I did not know what to do. I thought I had killed her in my passion and did not know what would become of me. This was between 11 and 12 o'clock in the forenoon, as near as I can tell. While I was inside, the two Crawfords and the two Spears passed close by the house. I heard them talking, and I saw them from the shanty. As soon as they had gone to get dinner, I again packed up the goods and started. In 20 minutes or half an hour after I struck Rosa, I took her body out and deposited under the woodpile. I held her in my arms a good while, expecting her to come too, and was not conscious when I dropped the dress which I had wrapped around her. After I had deposited the body under the wood, I came back into the house, and I mopped up the blood. I did place the heavy logs of wood over her feet. It was not more than fifteen minutes from the time I struck her the first blow till I struck her the final blow with the axe. The money that was claimed to be lost, and the watch, and Mrs. Colvin's clothing, I never saw and deny taking. God knows I am sorry for the deed I have done, and I hope to be forgiven. Alex lamented more than once that if only Rosa hadn't insisted that he stay in the cabin to wait for Bill's return, none of this would have happened. Alex spent his final days both reading the Bible and telling fellow prisoners he intended to put a knife into Sheriff Nicola. He even planned an escape. The idea was to use powder to blow the lock off their cell door, though there was no explanation for where this powder would come from, and then use the powder to blast a hole through the stone roof of an adjoining unoccupied cell. That would get them up to the top level of the building where female prisoners were held and offer them an escape from the roof. Well, Sheriff Nicola learned of these plans and he quickly put the kibosh on him. Alex retorted he had never planned to escape, that the prisoners just wanted to spend some time with the ladies upstairs. 
Alex appealed his conviction to the governor, asking that he commute his sentence to life. And he had some support in the form of a petition, with Siner saying the murder was clearly not premeditated. But the governor showed no mercy. After this, Alex seemed resigned to his fate. Visitors to his cell said he was usually calm and said he believed God had forgiven him, though the one thing that could make his veneer crack was the mention of the children he was leaving behind. He wrote to his wife. He said, I have wondered why you have not written to me often, for you must know the anxiety I have for our little ones, although I have proven an unfaithful parent to them. Do not let them grow up in ignorance, as I did. Alex also wrote his sister, asking her to pray for him. The day of his execution, neither his wife nor his sister were present for his final hour. He excused their absence, saying they were poor, dirt poor, and would have struggled to afford such a trip from Canada. Interestingly, a local effort was made to raise money to send Alex's wife to help in the support of the children. The gallows were built inside the jail in its northeast corner. There would be no crowd watching, just room enough for a few officials and some staff, though many residents gathered outside the building to await the final word. This was the way it had been done before. Four men had been hung there in past years. The gallows was a simple construction, Two upright posts, a cross beam, a platform with a center trap, the ladder to reach the platform, and the noose. Alex wore drab cloth pants, a pair of leather shoes, and a white cambric shirt. He was clean-shaven, but his eyes were swollen and bloodshot. The day before, every time they tested the trap, the sound of it would make him weep. One of Alex's last visitors was Rosa's husband, Bill. Witnesses said Bill approached the jail door and Alex reached out his hand. Bill drew back and shook his head. William, forgive me, Alex said, choked with emotion. If God forgives you, I will forgive you, he said. At this point, Sheriff Nicola intervened and told Bill Colvin, show some Christian spirit, that God had forgiven Alex and he should shake hands. Bill responded in a voice that trembled so much he was barely heard, I can never shake hands with a murderer. At this, Alex burst into tears. He retreated to his cot, knelt down, and began to pray. Then Bill asked to go inside the cell, where he told Alex, I always treated you well, and I suffered more than Rosa's death because of you. Bill recounted that, in addition to losing his wife, he had been accused of murder and lived in fear of being hanged if they hadn't been able to catch Alex. Because of that, Bill said, 
I'll never treat another man as kindly as I did you. But then suddenly Bill added, I forgive you as I hope to be forgiven. And he extended his hand. Both men shook even as they wept. Then the men separated and Bill left. On a Thursday at a quarter past noon, Alex was ushered up the scaffold. A minister prayed with him. Then the rope was placed around his neck. Alex thanked the prison staff who had been kind to him, said he hoped to be forgiven, and whispered goodbye. The black hood was drawn down over his eyes, and the trapdoor was sprung. But Alex didn't die right away. Witnesses said the drop did not break his neck as intended, that Alex had turned his head as he fell, and that caused the knot to go under his chin. He was slowly being strangled. The sheriff tried to hasten his death by lowering himself down the rope until he stood on Alex's shoulders, his weight causing the noose to tighten. In any case, news reports said it took Alex eight minutes to die. As was procedure, his body was left to dangle for a full 30 minutes before he was cut down and placed in a white wood coffin. The place of burial was not publicized. Rosa was buried in Berea in the Adam Street Cemetery, though in the days following Alex's execution, some believed she still haunted the old shanty. An article in The Plain Dealer on August the 10th, 1866, said a poor family named Miller had moved into the cabin and that they reported hearing strange noises in the middle of the night, the sound of doors opening and shutting, of an axe chopping, of windows being raised and closed. Once, they insisted, they could feel the entire structure shake violently. They also mentioned that Rose's blood still stained the wooden floor and walls, and there were sharp imprints of her hands and arms where she had apparently fallen against the wall. I want to give a big thank you to Laura Burgess of the Berea Historical Society, who not only suggested this story, but shared her extensive research into it. Laura said there are still mysteries to this sad tale. She was unable to learn what had become of Bill after he had been cleared or learn who Rosa was before she arrived with him in Olmstead Township, though there are indications Rosa may have been a native of Cuyahoga County. It seems likely Rosa met Bill when he came to Berea to work in the quarries. And since she chose for her third husband, a man who was abusive and an alcoholic, Laura said she thinks that speaks to the desperate poverty that ruled Rosa's life. There is one final question that nags at Laura. There is a second grave next to Rosa, a marker without a name, but suggestive of Rosa having had a daughter. News reports never mentioned Rosa being a mother, though at the age of 36, it seems more likely than not she was. And since they didn't mention it, 
it heightens the likelihood that the child died before Rosa was murdered. And that lends yet another element to Rosa's pitiable life and tragic end. That's it for tonight, listeners. For photos, news clippings, and more on this and every episode, hop on over to ohiomysteries.com. Also, for more shows like ours, head on over to killerpodcasts.com. We are a proud member of the Evergreen Podcast Network. The Battle of Waterloo was one of the most famous turning points in world history. But what happened next? My name's David Montgomery, and I'm the host of The Siecla, a history podcast that tackles exactly that. Join me as I cover France's overlooked century in between Napoleon and World War I. The Siecla, spelled S-I-E-C-L-E, is part of the Evergreen Podcast Network and can be found wherever you get podcasts.